welcome back to take two where our first our first go round of attempting to record this mess didn't work out quite so well um i had a i had a whole intro planned about like it was a joke about Derek brunson uh as cisco because he's like died it was so funny it was really funny and it's like too bad that i can't make the joke again the second time through uh, but that doesn't matter because we're not even here to talk about Derek Brunson this week on the Fight Site MMA podcast. We have once again brought in a guest and a friend of ours, Tuman Tushinov. I nailed that. Our good friend Tuman. Say hello. <laughs> I've just, I just have one thing to say. It's, uh, in you've done your best, Danny. Thank you. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, the thing I was uh, meant to say, I was meant to say, is uh, in uh, the aftermath of the last week's event, we should normalize jabbering up southpaws. We should normalize jabbering up southpaws. We should, and ah, uh, fuck's sake, I'm sorry. <laughs> so was it just one thing you wanted to say, or? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ. This is the lay of the land for this week, because um, yeah. when Derek Brunson fights, and then in the following week, Derek Lewis fights, uh, we are truly completely without ammunition. So uh, that basically means that we have free reign to talk about whatever it is we want to, which is tons of fun. Um, I am here with my co-host, as always, Sriram M. Morella Duran. Did I say that right? Yeah, we put a lot of, yeah, we put a lot of uh, stress on you with the names, don't we? This is a very stressful week. So this week is should be a really fun podcast because we brought Tuman on specifically, and I had a I had an idea for a podcast topic that was going to be that I wanted to do for for weeks now, and I just had never like I couldn't find like I couldn't think of like what are we gonna like when can we slot it in, and Tuman is just one of the funniest guys in this sort of circle of. Twitter MMA analysts, which is a massive circle, as you can probably well imagine. And he's one of the funniest. <laughs> Way to put the pressure on me. I've had enough. I've had a joke prepared for the intro as well. And then you said I'm the most funniest guy ever. And now I just... <laughs> and I've lost yeah, uh, it. For, for context, uh, Tuman is the one who wrote the guest posts about uh, how much he hates the UFC's business practices. Which, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, there were both brilliant articles. So I should probably get to the topic of the podcast because I keep saying <laughs> I feel like we've spent like 10 minutes total trying to get this intro right. And I'm still not sure we got there. But this week should be really fun. We are going to discuss the the worst game plans in MMA history. Now, as always, because Suram and I are required to and we're paid to, we have to sprinkle in a little bit of contextual analysis for the sake of you hardcores out there. You know, it's what we do. Uh, but more than that, I am mostly looking forward to just examining some of the funniest, most bizarre approaches that fighters have had in MMA. Because, my God, I feel like there's just an endless selection for us to choose from. Uh, would you agree, Saram? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I mentioned in the last podcast with Connor, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name again because that's going to make him mad. But I mentioned in the last podcast that um, really game planning is something that you shouldn't really expect from fighters as much as it is like a pleasant surprise. And I think this episode is kind of going to show like a lot of bad game plans. They just aren't game plans where if you look at someone who actively plans for a fight, they generally tend to be good at it because at least they've thought about it. It's very interesting to see how those can go horribly, horribly wrong. And that's kind of why I think this is going to be fun because part of the like part of the enjoyment here isn't just like like there are definitely fights we can look at and be like oh this person clearly had no game plan like they didn't know what they were getting in for they didn't have any like real concept of what the fight was going to look like but that is that is not why we're here friends we are here to discuss the the game plans that people actually sat down with their coaches thought about and uh, went out and tried to execute and it went horribly horribly wrong. Um, and in fact, as we're talking about this, I just thought of another one. Uh, we didn't even really have to go into it, but uh, Tuman, I'm sure you have your own thoughts about this one. Valentina Shevchenko versus Liz Carmouche. 
well, I've had a list compiled of all the game plans I've thought about, and uh, one, one of the honorable mentions is anyone who lost by KO against Valentina Shevchenko. <laughs> because, because really, in order to do that... How do you get it's, there? It's like, yeah. yeah, it's like your entire game plan must be must be revolving around uh, uh, like trying to close distance so fast and so harshly that you get knocked out. Priscilla Cashwara narrowly avoided this dishonor. Clearly she was smart. Mm. Oh yeah. God damn, we could just talk a bunch of Val- Valentino opponents, but that's boring. No, we want to talk about I want to talk about like funny ones. Like there's got to be there has to be ones that are that aren't just like I don't know. I feel like Jessica I's game plan. Yes, it was bad or whatever the hell she came in with, but she was never going to win that fight anyway. I'm talking about game plans that people came in with, and they're like, "This is it. This is how I win this fight. I've got it on lock," and it just falls apart catastrophically. Um, so I'm gonna pitch it to uh Tuman first. I know he's got like 18 in the back of his mind. Um, Tuman, please. Well, uh, throw me I've a bone. Actually, I've actually really struggled to come up with this list because my criteria were fairly strict. Uh, I've been trying to find game plans that were bad conceptually due to either show discounting, incorrect strategy, or tactics. And uh, my picking process was tied to the points I, I was trying to make about uh, like process and lack of process, which is tied to the last week's event. Uh, I suppose there's not a lot of genuinely bad game plans that fail due to a bad strategy. Most of the historically bad game plans, in fact, I mean, a total lack of a game plan, as Freedom had mentioned, because so few fighters on camps actually think about those fights uh, in, the, in these exact terms. And so I guess uh, we'll take it from the bottom or, or from the top, because, okay, let's take it from the top, because the top at least makes sense. It's going to make less and less sense as it goes down, because I've struggled to actually find anything. Uh, the first one is Dustin Poirier versus Khabib Nurmagomedov. Uh, which is, I think, we all can agree on, because it's a total failure of camp. Uh, incorrect scouting, disorganized corner work, failure to nail down a strategy at a conceptual level, and uh, uh, basic and genuinely just Dustin Poirier being uh, his big dumb sexy self, and, uh, <laughs> where he actually did. <laughs> that was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> And the second one is uh, Tyron Woodley versus anyone. Let's wait. Let's wait. Let's, we should we should dive into that first one because there's there's actually avenues to explore there. I'm glad you brought up the point of um like disorganized corner work because that was something I actually didn't I didn't come to that until after the fact. But you're absolutely right. Um, I if, full disclosure, I generally watch fights on mute. You know, I probably put some music on in the background or I may have a TV show rolling, whatever. Just something to kind of some noise in the background when I watch fights. But I don't really listen to the commentary anymore because it's just gotten so egregiously bad over the last few years. Yeah, but so, so I sometimes don't hear the corner work until like, you know, after the fight or long after. But what was it specifically in the corner work of this fight that was conflicting and disorganized? Yeah, uh, I'm so bad with names. I actually don't remember any other coaches aside from uh, Mike Brown and Dustin's Yeah, Diane but... Davis, I think. Yeah, and uh, the thing was, uh, Mike Brown would, would tell him like stop like backing up and uh, go forward to like uh, just punch the shit off out of Khabib, and the other one would would like give him uh, the opposite kind of instructions where uh, Dustin's. Uh, I don't remember exactly what they said, but I remember it being confusing because Mike Brown would say, go forward and uh, punch the shit out of him. And the other coach would say, like, no, stay on the outside, pick at him. And Dustin's brain just went haywire in that moment. And he like and he would try to do both at the same time and like leave (laughs) his entire lower body uh, on the outside while his hands were swinging forward. (laughs) It looked like he was trying to like. It looked like he was trying to that's swim into Khabib's face. <laughs> that's actually that's so true. Yeah, he was. God, he was bombing from like way on the outside. We talked about this for him. He was like, yeah. it was so weird to watch. It's like, I mean, if you showed someone that fight in isolation, you're like, yeah, this guy's supposed to be one of the most capable pocket boxers in the sport. People are like, really? <laughs> it was so just, weird. 
it's just the entire like the entire fight from Dustin is just the only thing I can say about it is but why? Why why are you doing this? What what was what was the concept behind this? Like I mean I'm sure you've mentioned it before, but uh, on a conceptual level, the most full the most foolproof approach against Khabib is to basically just pressure him. Either pressure him on or stay on the outside. And uh, like it's it's one or the other. And staying on the outside is uh, like essentially the worst thing you can do against him if you're not a, a masterful outside uh, boxer. Uh, that goes without saying. But and uh, Dustin looked scared of a, a reactive takedown that never comes. And uh, everyone, well, that's that's not only Dustin's fault. But basically, just everyone thinks that you know, Khabib is going to take you down from anywhere, and he never does that. Right. Uh, so that's why it's a, I consider this a failure on the most basic conceptual level, even about uh, thinking how you should win. Sir, what do you think? It's the weird sort of fight where you could look at everything that a fighter could like theoretically do against Khabib, and like he just did none of them at all. Like the, a lot of the line for the fight was pretty wide, and I think a lot of people picked Khabib just on presumption, like oh Dustin. He wasn't good at keeping Eddie Alvarez off him, for example. But there were some things Dustin could do to, like, not get completely squished and, like, kind of moderately squished. And he just didn't do that either. Like, the, the guillotines were the worst for me. Like, the rest was bad. The guillotines was just a thorough brain deadness. The, it, I know these are supposed to be funny, but that just made me sad. It is funny because you can think about, about it that in, in terms of uh, Habib is probably homophobic. And maybe Dustin was employing a psychological tactic against him by trying to take him down. No, that's good. <laughs> that's actually, I think Dustin, <laughs> Dustin is way smarter than we give him credit for. He's a smart fighter. Um, but I think, here's the thing. I was actually thinking about that that fight a few days ago. Um, and when, especially when you talk about the reactive takedown that doesn't doesn't come, doesn't show up. Like, if, if Poirier had been like taken off his feet throwing a shifting combination as he's trying to push could be back with strikes i think i probably could have accepted it a little better like if he was you know if he was actually trying to do you know kind of some of the stuff that he did against holloway and he just managed to get taken down in the process like i could have i could have seen that but it was the fact that he really just looked it, it like Khabib wasn't even doing that much. He hadn't even really established many threats before Dustin started second-guessing everything he did. Like, you know, he kind of, he would throw a kick, and then Khabib, like, caught the kick, and he was like, oh, can't do that anymore. But Khabib hadn't done anything with it. And then, you know, he tries to, like, throw big shots from the outside, and, you know, they miss because Khabib is too far away to be hit. And he's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't try that either. Like, And then by that point, he's just sort of getting walked. He's just sort of getting walked down in the process. He he is, was just so anxious about Khabib getting close to him. Yeah, very weird. <laughs> I reiterate that. Who's homophobic now? Out of the two of them. <laughs> since, since Dustin tried to stab this guy away from him. I mean, that was a win on reputation. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Everyone discussed this. Khabib has an aura of a champion. And uh, everyone like who fights against Khabib uh, fights actually against a, an imaginary Khabib that exists in their head and not that, not the actual fighter that, that's in front of them. And uh, that that's a real thing. And that leads uh, a lot of uh, people to make mistakes against them out of just sheer shookness, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like that's the thing. We, I feel like we've kind of talked about this fight to death over the over the time that we've done this I mean, podcast, but it is, it yeah, is true. <laughs> like it, it is just a it is a bizarre one. Um, the whole like staying long. No, you need to push forward. And Poria was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to he tried to swim into Khabib's face. You got yeah. He, he tried to swim in. It's like this is not the stuff that was ever good. I mean, the fact that Poirier managed to even hurt Khabib, that was the most like in some ugly ass exchange. 
that was the moment where I was like, oh yeah, that that was kind of your only chance, wasn't it? Like with oh. clearly with the pro- approach you came in with, like catching Khabib in a messy exchange and like hurting him was your best chance because you didn't have any way to like build structures to get to to get to the places you need to in this fight. That much was clear. That's the thing with uh, the bad game plans that I've came up with. It's not exactly like just well, there are they are bad game plans, but uh, they also game plans that actually personally offend me because most of the time the fighter has a weapon <laughs> or a tool set that uh, can grant him victory, except he doesn't use it or uses it incorrectly because Dustin had every chance of beating Khabib if he used. Uh, uh, used his fundamentals, so like ringcraft and footwork, in a correct way. But obviously, that's just—I uh, suppose that's just asking a fighter to do something he never does and never did. Yeah, kind of hard to pick someone to do that, right? Yeah, it's like saying that um, Conor McGregor beat up uh, Mayweather if he actually was a boxer. It's kind yeah. of in the way, the same thing. Yeah, it's true. Um. Serum, I gotta. I, this is this segment, first segment, probably bummed you the hell out. So, um, I'm gonna try to raise your spirits a little bit. What is your p- first pick for uh, terrible MMA game plans, and uh, why is it Tyron Woodley versus Kamaru Usman? Tulin's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> list kind of took all of mine, which were Tyron Woodley's entire fight catalog, but. Woodley Usman, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good one to start. You don't because... have to. I I didn't know what yours was. I just I figured that talking talking shit on Woodley was probably gonna raise your spirit a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of over the Dustin one just because he's looked good since, and I don't expect guys to look good off bad losses anymore. But you know, this the Fight Island stuff really did help with that. But it's yeah, I think Woodley's actually a good one just because it makes the point that Tuman made at the beginning, which is that the worst game plans are just no game plan at all. And it was funny because seeing Woodley get beat up with like the resigned expression of have I left my oven out at home is very, very funny to me. But it's the kind of thing where it looks like Woodley has a game plan for every opponent who falls into exactly what he does. And when they don't, it just looks completely pathetic and awful. Well, the thing about Woodley is uh, fighting this negative makes my inner energies turn negative. That's why he's second place. Oh man, I'm glad I'm glad we got a chance to do this because it's not like we talk shit on Woodley literally every day that we're on Twitter. Um, but I think that the one thing that I, I will say I'm, I'm happy about as Woodley has gotten, I think it's it's fair to use this term as he has lost ten straight rounds, and if he's fighting Colby Covington, there's a good chance it's going to bump up to fifteen. Um, is the fact that like Woodley is this really smart fighter? He's so smart. He's got such good fight IQ. <laughs> It's like, he's I mean, if, big, if you approach... Yeah, yeah. Probably bigger than his ass. <laughs> <laughs> if you approach Stephen Thompson and Kamaru Usman the same way, I don't think you're a smart fighter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe it's rude to say that. Um, but you're, like... That's the thing with Tyron Woodley, is that he approaches everybody the same is that he expects everybody to be cowed by his same two threats, one of which became less and less pervasive over time. I mean, like, when was the last time Woodley hit a takedown on someone? Was it Thompson in the rematch in, like, 2017? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because he didn't didn't take down Maya. He didn't take down Darren Till. Usman hit all the takedowns in their fight. It's not like he ever got Burns down. He did take down Darren Till. I have to correct you. He did take down Darren Till. He did he take, take down. down with his fist. <laughs> I mean, the thing about Woodley is that he pretty much approaches every fight the same, like you said. But isn't that the case with, like, basically the majority of MMA fighters? But the thing about Woodley is that he approaches it in an ass-backwards way. Because the thing that wins most MMA fights is initiative, and he completely concedes, initi- concedes initiative in order to like find this perfect right hand shot, and he for some reason thinks that it's that it's going to like scare everyone away from him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the thing where 
someone who's like super minimalist, they tend to have the, oh, you're really smart thing attached to them. Like when someone's game shouldn't work, people just assume that they do their things smartly. Where it like, for Woodley, that wasn't it. And I think the bigger indictment of Woodley's fight IQ is like both Thompson fights. Because the first one, it like, it kind of worked, but it didn't. And the second fight, you're like, oh, both guys are going to improve and come back. But then they just did what they did the first time, but even less of it. So if you look at like actual trilogies that like are good and show guys that are very smart, it's just, it's the exact opposite of that. So like anyone who's saying Woodley's smart after Thompson 2, it's just an opinion that I have like no respect for. Yeah, that was the funniest thing is that we all expect, well, maybe in hindsight, we should have seen this a little bit better, but there was some expectation that we were going to be like, like, oh yeah, they'll have learned something about each other. And it was the fact that they just, every, it was like every round was a reset. It's like, you know, you had, there was no, there was no, nothing to build on was the funniest thing. Yeah, Um, that's, that's the thing about, I wanted to make this point that, uh, in order to make a correct game plan, it has to be, you have to have a system to build on. Like you have a set, you have to acknowledge the set of tools your fighter has. And like, a, a, what, what is a process in my opinion? In my, in, in my terms, a process is like a system of techniques and uh, of ideally complementary techniques that allows a fighter to win the fight. And he uses them like in combination with his footwork and other fundamentals like this. And like Woodley, Wonder Boy and uh, uh, I guess Till ostensibly have this system, but they don't build on it. And, and as a result, there can be really no game plan. Like the only fights that uh, they looked impressive in is uh, basically the same as with Valentina Shevchenko because it's just their opponent gives them the opportunity to utilize the tools they have and not them trying to create opportunities and just it's just well as i said it's just fighting negatively just conceding initiative until this initiative brings them brings your opponent to you i have a feeling that tyron woodley is going to be a champion that we look back on in like five years or so and just be like how in the fuck did this guy ever win a belt like how did how in like you know from like 2016 through 2018 where we had you know Max Holloway and Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya on the on the rise. Like you had these, you know, Volkanovski, like these talented, incredibly skilled fighters who were like raising the bar, and we just 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 this. You just watch Woodley stuck along and <laughs> do nothing. Woodley doesn't raise the bar. The bar is just on the floor, and he looks at it and waits for it to lift up by itself. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to look back and be like, God damn, what a terrible time that was. Um, yeah, and like, it's in a time bubble. The good news is, I mean, that's the thing is, it seems like it's popped. The good news is, like, now people have picked up on it and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess he really can't deal with uh, Orthodox fighters or fighters who can clinch him or, you know, fighters who just prepare for a right hand. Like, yeah, maybe he's not all that good. Uh, so that's a good one. My I, I, Now it's my turn, and you know I'm excited because uh, I, this is actually... And maybe I cheat a bit because this isn't, this isn't a bad game plan. Uh, in my opinion, this is actually one of the best game plans I've ever seen in MMA, truth be told. It is a game plan where... Um, okay, we've all seen the, the powerful uh, counterpuncher... But this incredibly smart, crafty contender uh, configured a way to combine a myriad of feints with uh, lateral movement um, and a high work rate, you know, from the outside through every range, you know, attack, you know, feinting every attack, punches, kicks, whatever, just, you know, throwing the whole, you know, everything but the kitchen sink in faint form at this counterpuncher to completely diffuse their senses and disarm them. It was a, a masterful showing. And of course I am talking about Clay Guida versus Gray Maynard. <laughs> People, thought, <laughs> People thought I was going to say <laughs> versus Aldo. It's not right. You got to understand where the OG game plan came from. It was Clay Guida. Um, this is one of the funniest fights I've ever seen in my life. Um, if you like, 
it, Clay, god damn, I don't even I don't even know where to start with it. Like this is probably the type of fight that Joe Rogan would watch and say something like, "Oh man, Clay Guida looks like he's looking like Willie Pep out there." Like <laughs> cuz it was basically <laughs> Clay Guida throwing like a mile a minute feints at Gray Maynard who just looked completely flustered and confused by what was happening. Um, Guida like bobbed and weaved and moved all over the cage. I don't, you know, I don't remember how many times he hit Maynard, but it wasn't a lot. Um, and you could just see how frustrated and annoyed Gray Maynard was because he couldn't do anything. Oh my God. And it makes me laugh because it is like, in some ways, it does kind of feel like a really, really, really just like primitive version of a Dominic Cruz fight or, you know, like the Volkanovski-Aldo <laughs> fight where none of these fa- none of these fates are systemic. Like, they're not systematic. They're not, you know, they don't really like, they don't layer or anything. It's just... It's just like white noise that's filling the space in front of Gray Maynard, and he, he just can't do anything about it. It is, it is fucking hilarious. All right, what do you we guys think? This, we saw this. Uh, it's actually, in my opinion, Clay Guido versus Gray Maynard. It is a preview for Diego Sanchez's performance against Michelle Pereira. <laughs> you can see the costumes. Yeah, you've got the. Yeah, I see the evolution. The evolution continues. Go on. Game has evolved. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because Gray Maynard kind of seems to be a magnet for this kind of thing because the Ryan Hall fight comes to mind as another one where he just got madder and madder at someone just doing silly shit in his face. But, yeah, I mean, Clay Guida's just... It's really weird to me that Clay has become known for, like, these knockdown, drag-out wars or something, like, at least from from a promotional standpoint, when, like, he kind of hasn't, and he kind of beat Maynard with, like, the most hilariously negative fight that I've seen from anyone who isn't Woodley. I'm not going to call it negative because it's like uh, it was hard working, did but like, more, he did more in this fight than Woodley has ever done in a fight in his life. You cannot deny like, that like he came in with an approach and was like, I'm going to like I'm never going. He, he's like a he's like a wind up toy. <laughs> it's a neutral approach. It's not I, a negative. Approach. Work not, physically dude, has the connotation of getting things done, though. Well, what are, you, are you kidding me? <laughs> he's like he completely confused and <laughs> baffled Gray Maynard. I'd say it was a win. All right, fair enough. I think he absolutely got something done. He made the audience absolutely hate him. <laughs> and like, oh my god. I mean, I'm I'm literally I have it running in the background as we're doing this. And I'm seeing Maynard like trying to be slick. He like tried to he pivoted. He's like trying to do a, you know, an opening left hook. But he just can't he can't find him. He can't do anything. He tried one jab, and uh, Clay Guida pull countered him, <laughs> and so he has to stop. Um, if, yeah, you want to talk about taking your opponent's weapons away? Fuck me, dude. That is the funniest. That is one of the funniest fights ever. It's and a really like, fight. it is a <laughs> like a kind of surprisingly smart game plan from Clay Guida, because like. I mean, what else was he gonna do? He wasn't gonna. He was never gonna knock Maynard out, presumably. And it's not like he could out wrestle him. Like, <laughs> you know, you just uh, you just faint him out of his shorts, and uh, you just you just tap him. You know, it's like it's brilliant. Like there's, I oh, I love it so much. So, <laughs> Tuman, you got another uh, another sizzler for us? Well. The thing about uh, Clay Guida is that he's uh, neutralized me into passivity because I can't come up with nothing. <laughs> yeah, he did get warned for passivity in that fight, didn't he? <laughs> the ghost of Clay Guida haunts us to the point where we, where we can't actually make any jokes funnier than the actual fight itself. <laughs> That's just a... You just kind of got to enjoy that one for what it is. So what's your what's your next what's your next terrible game plan, Tuman? Well, my next uh, terrible game plan was Darren Till versus, versus Tyron Woodley. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> what, 
<laughs> because fuck two for making Woodley look good. Fucking big stiff idiot. Now he's broke everyone's brain by <laughs> this loss, and everyone yearns for the return of that Woodley, which never ever existed in reality ever. And now, and now for some reason this loss, this uh, like just embarrassing loss, just propelled Till into stardom for some reason. And I just, I, I just can't get it. I just don't understand this. Uh, it just, as I've said, it just broke everyone's brain. This loss. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm never gonna give up a chance to like be mean to Tyron Woodley. And this was. I think a lot of people interpreted it as like, oh, Woodley came out with something to prove. Like it was the yeah. kind of circumstances that made it seem like he would do something completely different. And then he came out through one big right hand at the outside. I was like, oh shit, it's aggressive Woodley who pressure boxed Robbie Lawler. This should be fun. And then he just backed up again. <laughs> There's so, levels to this. Yeah. <laughs> There's levels to this. Everyone started saying this. <laughs> After this fight, there's levels to this. What levels? Oh, Nothing happened. True. Nothing yeah, happened exactly. for an entire yeah. round. The yeah, best thing about that phrase is land a strike. Like there, I don't know what the what is the metric here. Like the best thing about everyone saying the levels thing is it actually started with Rockhold Bisping too, where Rockhold was like, "There's levels to this." So like everyone who said it, except for like Frankie Edgar, has gotten kind of completely shit stomped. <laughs> there are levels to this. You're never I mean, wrong. I mean. I think- Laura Usman came out and proved that that was that was that was true. Like <laughs> Usman has more has more levels. Yeah, there's not an incorrect. <laughs> it's not he technically wrong. Grind. Yeah, well, I, you could say that that Kamaru uh, Usman is a grinder in more ways than one. Mmm, I like it. <laughs> I think that was the thing. Like, I still. I, I'm completely with you, Tuman, and I have I have explained this point numerous times. I was like, I still don't really know how to evaluate Darren Till, and in some ways, I still don't, because you know he's we talked about it today. He he got that win over Cerrone, and then he's fought like Thompson, Woodley, Masvidal, Gastelum, and Whitaker, so he took a major step up, but. And, like, he has improved in the time. Like, I realize he is a better fighter now than he was when he lost to Tyron Woodley. I think we can all agree on that. But he also hasn't won many of these fights either. Like, is he really so much better now that he wouldn't just, you know, maybe make a lot of the same mistakes against Woodley again? Fuck if I know. Well, you see, Darren Till employs... And another level of the Clay Guida strategy where he just tramps <laughs> around doing doing just these air karate moves. Yeah, and it's always it's always what it is. That's the answer here. It's just another level. Another level of game planning, another level of skill. Speaking of another level, I have a fight that I'd like to share while I'm thinking about it that is the most that definitely did indicate to me that there are levels, but not in the way that people thought. Fabricio Verdum's game plan against Alistair Overeem in their rematch in Strikeforce. For those of you who don't remember, this was the fight where the guard Fabricio pulling. The guard pull, but it wasn't it was more just like flopping. Uh <laughs> Verdum Verdum really wanted to get that fight to the mat. And uh I'm not even sure why, because like Overeem is Overeem is a good He's a good grappler, and he's good from top position. I don't know why Verdum thought that his, like... I can tell you the reason. It's precisely. the first fight, Kimura. It's, it's because the previous fight that he won before Overeem was Emelianenko. And he submitted him by submitting oh, from right. the guard. Yeah, you're right. And that made him think that he's the greatest submission artist in all of history, because he submitted <laughs> the greatest mixed martial artist in history. Which yeah. is kind of brain fought and flopped into his guard. Yeah, that's I didn't even think about that. But here's here's the thing that kind of lays it duplicate for me and why it's so strange. Because what I you know, we said earlier the whole levels thing is bullshit. But this was actually this is actually funny to me. During Strike Force, Overeem was pretty he was pretty close to the K one ream. Like it wasn't too much this wasn't too much longer after he'd won the the Grand Prix. And Verdun goes out there and lands every strike he throws very easily against Overeem. He does not have any difficulty finding his chin because Overeem's defense at this point was still 
uh, you know, it was still finding out in Spain that MMA gloves are not kickboxing gloves and that people didn't have to work that hard to hit him anymore. He kicked his body. Like, he landed on Overeem so easily. And, like, Overeem didn't hit him once. If you want, like, the honest hipster MMA opinion, if you if I if I have, you know, I have plenty of those. Here's one of them. Verdum deserved to win, to beat Overeem if you score fights correctly. You know, if you if you weigh significant offense against non-scoring actions, Verdum landed the more significant offense. <laughs> he beat Overeem. He had Overeem like shook a couple times because he hit him like every time he tried to hit him, he could. But the fact is. Like, that somehow didn't, you know, ingratiate Verdum into striking with Overeem. He was still, like, so completely heart-set on, like, trying to... He was just dead set on getting Overeem down to the mat. And so he would flop for guard, like, every 15 seconds. It was... God, it's bizarre. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I think the uh, thing with these game plans is just... You, every time you go, but why? And the but why in here is him uh, flopping to his back. And uh, I think the reason for this, as I've said, is uh, his victory over uh, Fyodor Emelianenko, where he, I guess, he decided that the crown of the greatest mixed martial artist has been passed down from Emelianenko to him. And, his, uh, and Emelianenko, of course, knew how to do everything, which he, of course, didn't. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's convinced that uh, by submitting Emilienko, all the sweat that he's absorbed from trying to squeeze him as hard as he can carried like these just <laughs> magic properties that would make him into a, a masterful all-rounder. And I suppose he wanted to punctuate that with a submission win over over him as well <laughs> after piecing on the on the feet. Oh my god. And that's the fu- and the funniest the other funny thing is that like when over when Verdum actually has Overeem in his guard, Overeem just kind of beats him up from top. Like that's the other thing, like even when Verdum gets what he wants, it doesn't it doesn't win him his the fight as easily as striking with Overeem. It is like it is the ultimate like but why I'm like watching it right now. Verdum just landed like a three punch combination and Overeem did nothing. So not only did that fight teach me, okay, Overeem is very obviously not this, like, next-level heavyweight striker the way, you know, a lot of promotions wanted him to be. There was no, like, he wasn't, just because he had won, you know, the Grand Prix off of horse meat and, you know, juiced-up steroid power, it didn't mean that he was, he was, like, any... Like and like demonstrably better a striker than a lot of his contemporaries, but it also taught me just how like just how low <laughs> the bar is at heavyweight because there are pe- there are some people who still maintain that Verdum is like a top three heavyweight of all time, and if that's the case, well, we may have could... underestimated how bad it is. <laughs> you could say that the bar. It's too heavy. Mm, I like it. <laughs> Sturm, what do you think about this winner? I think Verdum is the top three of all time is like kind of fair, but it's like Verdum was a fighter who always like kind of knew what to do against like the AKA types like Cain Velasquez and stuff. So this was just, it was really funny when like, cause you mentioned this earlier as uh, one of these and I watched it again and it wasn't like, it was hilarious and kind of painful to watch. Cause as you mentioned, it was like Verdum, He's not generally the kind to like lock himself into I am a grappler, I have to grapple at all costs. Like he'll take it if it's there, but generally he's not that kind. So this one he's just like, I can knock over him out, but how about I just like pull guard? It's just it's it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen from him. And it's it's if I liked Verdum more, it would be more frustrating. And like I, it's kind of just a passive, hey, he's fine for heavyweight, so it's just it was just really funny. Well, the thing about Verdum is is that everyone thinks he's this uh like um a really smart, really crafty trickster because he makes that funny face every time he's weighing in. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> the only smart, the only funny and smart and crafty thing he does is actually make that face and nothing else. <laughs> I mean, I think the way to look at Verdum for me is that like 
he makes sense as a heavyweight against like the as I mentioned the AKA types because you know he like he kicks the body and he, like he knows that heavyweights are generally kind of shit at counter punching so they can just like run forward with flurries and he has a place where even if he's tripped or like falls down randomly he can tap guys out. I wouldn't say he's crafty but I would say the skill set that he has is smarter than that of many heavyweights. So the way that it worked to like completely deny himself the area of strength that he had over Overeem is really funny. If you look at the third fight, it kind of went in a weird way too. Cause like Overeem, he fought a super low volume fight and Verdum, he hurt Overeem badly. Like he could hit Overeem at will again. He just really couldn't figure out a way to like make that count until the third round. And he arguably didn't lose it. So like that's just a really funny trilogy in every way. Very technical. Um, very high level yeah and the funny thing is like i have seen uh, at least once i have seen verdum show up with a good game plan uh again it's cain velasquez but not this one <laughs> this one was <laughs> this one was bad um <laughs> even though i still think he probably did enough to win the fight Swiram, what is your what is your next terrible game plan if you have one yeah, so I mean, talking about Woodley all this time kind of made me think of one that wasn't on um, on Tuman's list, and it's probably the satisfied result I watched this year. Uh, it's Garbrandt versus the Sunstyle, but from Garbrandt, because I think a lot of people kind of made the um, made the leap that Garbrandt had improved a lot. But like, if you watch it again, it's kind of a really <laughs> weird, dumb fight from him where he conceded every advantage that he would have over a prime Sunstyle and won because Sunstyle was super old and got impatient. So it was Prima Sunset. He was like the better kicker of the two, right? And Prima Sunset would like counter him if he rushed in. So what Garbrandt did was kick with the Sunset on the outside, win on volume because the Sunset just stopped throwing anything at that point, and then wait for a Sunset to walk in on him against the fence and just club him with the right hand. Like it was, it was one of the dumbest finishes I've ever watched. Well, the reason why Garbrandt uh, won, in my opinion, is that uh, he had something to prove. He had something to prove because his hairline is atrocious. <laughs> more and more atrocious as the years go by. He needs so, keeps. <laughs> he needs keeps. And, uh, well, the thing is, if he gets keeps, I'm afraid he's going to stop improving. He needs some insecurity to keep winning fights. It's, it's a double-edged sword. His hairline is like his right hand. Winning percentage. <laughs> nah, actually, he outthugged the sun style. That's the real answer. Okay, I don't remember it being that bad of a game plan. I like, I don't, I do remember a Sunsouth starting to figure Cody out a bit, but like, it was, you know, he also landed, like, he also kind of knocked a Sunsouth down with a shot, and a Sunsouth clearly felt it was in his best interest to try to up the pace and, you know, push his advantage, and that didn't really work either. Didn't, didn't Cody get buzzed a bit? I feel like he ran on to, like, one counter, and then he just, like, well, better not do that again. Yeah. I don't know. He's still in there. The guy who decided, who, like, threw caution to the wind against Pedro Munoz, he's still in there. Yeah, I think the funny thing, that's what's funny about it, is that, like, you had all these people going, like, oh, yeah, Cody is no longer with Team Alpha Male completely. He's with uh, Mark Henry. And Mark Henry is going to totally take Cody Garbrandt and bring him back to the Garbrandt who beat Cruz, trademark, copyright, whatever. And... He didn't look like a lot of it reminded me of like Garbrandt Dillashaw too, where you're like, oh, Garbrandt is going to come up with a better game plan this time. And the commentators were like, oh, this is a better game plan. He's kicking more. I'm like, okay, cool. He's kicking more, but that's not what he does. So how is that a better game plan? He doesn't have an advantage in the kicking really. So like he's not getting into the pocket more to like kill people. He's just kicking more. It doesn't really matter. It is kind of a Mark Henry improvement, isn't it? Like that is, that is sort of, I, I mean, I literally have an article coming out, a metagame article that should be coming out this week on a lot of what you just said. Like, it's prioritization in training. And I use Frankie Edgar as an example of a fighter who had their game pretty well established. And then he, you know, for whatever reason, Edgar always just had that, like, spinning kick in his game. I don't know why. It's never done anything for him. Never, It's never even landed clean. He's never hurt anyone with it. Doesn't do anything. Why? Why are you throwing that spinning kick, Frankie? <laughs> but it's in there. He and he's like, he's like, I'm gonna throw it because I got it. And it is maybe that is just like the Mark Henry thing. He's like, Mark Henry's like, I, I, I figured it out. I figured out your problem. 
Yep. No problem, kiddo. Like we're going <laughs> to, I'm going to get you kicking and well, all is going to be right. That's the thing with the general philosophy in MMA, isn't it? Uh, like everyone keeps obsessing over tools, over techniques, and everyone thinks that the person has got more techniques and more diversity of attack is going to win every time. And uh, when we found out time and again that it's the depth of the, the your proficiency with your techniques, uh, select few techniques that you can use well and uh, at appropriate times will always trump having just uh, like a 50 kicks uh, like you can that you can throw from any position, regardless of position, to the point where you actually forget where you are and start throwing these kicks. Yeah, but he's he 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 threw them though. Uh, I think you're I think you're missing the the point here. Um, he's matured because he can kick now. Well, Very yeah, good. of course. It's a it's another level of. It's lower body level. It's, yeah, it's, that's totally what it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> fuck, dude. Do we have any more standouts? Any more like? major level game plan stand out <laughs> to level. talk about before before we wrap this up because i got one in the back of my mind but i'm gonna let you guys go first if you have one uh calvin kata versus zabit mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well what's all about no comment <laughs> well the reason why i've included this on the list first of all to piss everyone off <laughs> for me yeah and the other one is that uh, Kate's actually one of those uh, uh, fighters that actually personally offend me <laughs> uh, my dislike uh, I suppose uh, there's no real reason aside from my I suppose irrational dislike of Calvin which is come to think of it actually not irrational at all my dislike stems from his camp's apparent inability to scout his opponents for him which is why he yeah. needs to spend one and a half rounds trying to figure out what to do, and uh, he just kind of runs around looking lost, much like he did against uh, Stevens in his last fight. Admittedly, Stevens came out trying to pressure and actually cut the gauge, but uh, still, come on. Why are you getting? Why, why, why are you cutting? Yeah, why are you getting trapped along the fence by Jeremy Stevens? It's Jeremy Stevens, <laughs> a notably not good like cage cutter. Um, yeah, no, I, I feel it kind of the same way. And this is one of the reasons I've always like, I don't, I don't like Calvin Cater nearly as much as a lot of my contemporaries because like, I get the sense that, I mean, he is clearly, clearly he's a finished product and I get it. He's like 13 years into his career, but it is, it is amazing to watch him just look lost for a good portion of the fight and like especially when he's fighting longer opponents who stay on the back foot and kick him and are you know are good on the outside and can, you know are mobile like that slow start that like okay what am i gonna do just gets way exacerbated like maybe maybe cater really is like a boxer at his core in the sense that like he really needs a slow start to, to for his own sake, for his own timing, to build his own attack pattern. But I've also illustrated before the risks in running that kind of game in MMA, and we've seen it before. And like I said, I'm I'm have a feeling we're gonna see it again. Like he's, I still don't like a lot of the things that Calvin Cater relies on in a fight, and I, I think that it's. The, the possibilities are ample for people who just want to sort of dissuade him from a, you know, from a, you know, taking the initiative right from the get go that are able to sort of exacerbate his slow start. And then by that point, they might just build up enough momentum that they just kind of shut him out. Well, that's the thing with the boxers, isn't it? Uh, the idea that a boxer needs to needs a slow start to figure out what he needs to do. I mean, a boxer is a boxer is a boxer. Some boxers are slow starters, some boxers are fast starters and or front runners. And the thing with Cater is that um, he lacks, like, it seems like he lacks a process to get him uh, where he wants to be, which is in the pocket boxing. And uh, like his footwork is uh, fairly like uh, 
it's uh, mechanically it's sound. Everything about him is mechanically sound. That's the thing. It's just as Ringcraft is very like disorganized and very like. It, the thing about him looking lost is that he looks lost in more ways than one. <laughs> Once again, it's that um, first of all, he doesn't know what he wants to do in the first opening minutes of the fight. He doesn't know. He looks like he doesn't know where he wants to be against this particular opponent, and uh, he doesn't know how to get there. And he needs all this time to figure out uh, either how to get there or to lure his opponent to him. And uh, which is honestly where he usually looks best, just uh, back foot countering, which he rarely does. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to disclaim this by saying that uh, I'm the only one on this podcast right now who does like Calvin Cater and quite a lot. But I think the thing about Cater, it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is that game planning is something that's more of a net positive than lack of it is a net negative. I think it's kind of exaggerated by the fact that he's at a division where the top two are among the smartest fighters we've ever seen in Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky, as well as the fact that his losses have been to like really defined specific matchups and uh, longer kicky types like Mokano and Zabit, which is that I think the viability of what he does is kind of understated by the people who don't like him as much. And I think most fighters aren't more versatile than he is. It just doesn't really look as bad because they haven't been quote unquote exposed I think Cater, for example, Cater Ige wasn't a great look from him because Ige was able to replicate a lot of the stuff that uh, the guys that made him come forward did to him. But it's also noteworthy that with this kind of stupid process that he does, that's like super narrow, he's still been able to be a clear top five featherweight 13 years into his career with no room to grow. So I think it kind of takes some tempering there. I think if you rate Zabit as a genuine top fighter, you kind of have to rate Cater the same way. Well, I agree. The thing was, is uh, that even with this narrow, limited game, he's still he's still able to consistently finish his opponents uh, in this division that is very hostile to him in terms of uh, matchups available. But uh, what annoys me about him is he clearly, clearly has the tools to win uh, basically most of the fights he's in. And if he had a clear direction in which he wants to the fight to go, if he knew from the get-go what he wants to do, It'd be that much better. But that's the thing about MMA, isn't it? Like, you always expect too much from it. <laughs> because having seen MMA yeah. at its best, uh, everything else is a letdown. It's like with fight night cards and prelims and everything else. It, everyone is just like a... Everyone just kind of throws shit at a wall and, to, to, and <laughs> tries to see what sticks. And uh, no one really comes in. Because the most common, what's the most common thing you usually hear from fighters uh, when in the post-fight interviews? I don't usually prepare for a, a specific opponent. I just try to enforce my game. Things, yeah. And uh, that's something the that cater specifically said before Ige. It's like I don't know what Dan Ige does. I'm just trying to be the best Calvin Cater. It's like okay, that's cool, but you know, I think that's the thing about Cater is I think the biggest mark against him is that in his last three fights, all three of his opponents have effectively game planned for him. Uh, Zobit with the length and, you know, basically just do what Moicano does, slightly, well, way less damagingly, slightly worse. And then you had Stevens, who played the pressure kicking game. And uh, unlike Danny, I think he did it quite well for, like, the first time in his career. It was actually a genuinely smart, good performance where he didn't really have success with the footwork, but he, like, hit the body, he kicked the legs. He had an idea of what he wanted to do against Cater, what he didn't against others. And Cater wasn't super comfortable in that fight, even though he won it. And then you had Ige, who drew him forward, hit the body with body head combinations. Like, Cater's a fighter who's easy to navigate, even if he's not easy to beat. Yeah. And, uh, well, it also comes uh, to my point that uh, no one in MMA actually really understands what a game plan means, like the word itself. Like, everyone thinks, like, a game plan is just, oh, a game plan is something that you do in a fight to win the fight, which is, uh, like, the most basic surface level understanding, level understanding of the word. And uh, to the point where, like, recently the UFC Twitter account posted uh, a tweet uh, where it, it says, Habib announced a devastating game plan against uh, Justin Gagey. And it just says, it's just a quote for him that says, oh, I'm going to drown him. I'm going to beat him up. I'm going to smash him. <laughs> just I'm, I'm going to set up a James Bond trap for him with, with a shark tank. And he's going to fall into it and drown and get eaten by the sharks. And the sharks are my fists. I will win. That is my game plan. I will simply score more. 
Yeah, excited to announce an innovative fight strategy I have tailored specifically to mitigate my opponent's strengths that employs a never-before-seen tactic I personally like to call winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys kind of mostly said it. I think, I think part of the reason Cater annoys me so much is because I think he's both... He's kind of just less than the sum of his parts. Like... People really love to bang the drum about how how great his boxing is and how technical he is and all this sort of stuff. And it's like it's it's how easily he can be deterred by a couple of threats and how like the effectiveness of his game is like cut in half when you do that. And I've talked about I've I've talked about this many times with Calvin Cater, but like I think I overestimated how good he was off of the Burgos fight because Burgos was a fighter who sort of kept giving him kept giving him what he wanted. Like he sort of kept entering range. Burgos is not particularly good at cutting the cage. And it was a bit of a mirror match where Cater had largely seen most of the stuff that Burgos was going to offer him. It's the fact that if you can, you know, it's as simple as like forcing force Cater to pressure. He's not comfortable doing that. If you kick Cater consistently, you don't even have to like, you don't have to like chop his legs off the way Moicano did. You can just use it as a threat and convince Cater that it's there. And his effectiveness with the jab is muted. Like, and Zabit did those two things very quickly. And then when those two threats were established, Zabit was like, oh shit, I can kind of, I can kind of mop this guy because he's not, he doesn't have a consistent way to like, to get to me. And so, like, Until the all halfway of, point of round two. It was actually, like, the four-minute point in round two. I was actually surprised when I rewatched it. I was like, oh, yeah, Cater really only did stuff in, like, the last 60 seconds, which kind of honestly saved him from a 10-8 because he did nothing in the first, like, 80% of that round. And Zabit's like, I can hit his body. All of the notable body punching came from Zabit. Like, the diversity of attack, everything was... It was just a confluence of a bunch of different threats that he was able to establish, and Cater just couldn't establish a consistent timing with that. And when I watch a fight like that, I really, I still have the question. I'm like, at what point, like, how good do you actually have to be at these things? Like, like the sort of depth versus diversity question is always in the back of my mind. It's like, what po- at what point can a diverse opponent just, just shut Cater down? And he just doesn't have anything to he, he has to just force his advantages by, you know, covering large amounts of distance. Like, that's kind of what he did against It's kind of what we were talking about with like Poirier against Khabib. Like he threw these shots from way on the outside that were always going to miss. He couldn't close down effectively and he got countered when he did it. And I was like, well, now I wonder I still like I'm if the fight gets made tomorrow, I will pick Yair Rodriguez over Calvin Cater. Any day of the week. <laughs> if that fight, I don't care. I don't, and I, if even if I'm wrong, definitely I'll, will not. I will. I'll take it on. I don't care if, if I'm wrong, but I'm. I have a. I have a hunch because it's it's just stuck with me ever since I watched that fight. That a a big long outside kicker who throws a lot of volume and is just super diverse and mobile kind of sounds like the thing that Cater hates the most. You know, I mean, the only other matchup that I think would really like cater would seriously hate is volkanovsky that maybe is a bit unfair but like it's also an accurate one like yeah as we all know the worst thing a fighter can do is uh convince danny that he's actually good it's true yeah <laughs> and, then, and then he'll hate you forever for me yeah exactly that was the, that was the biggest mistake that he made i kind of um, think the exact opposite about a lot of what you said, except for the Zabit part, which I think is accurate. I think Cater is exactly the sum of his parts, which is kind of the problem, which is like, if you look at the top of the division, guys, like you can even look at another jab straighty boxer like Max Holloway, who finds a lot of different applications for what he does. And you're like, oh, this is the norm for a top featherweight. And you look at Cater and he's kind of not fat, but he's also hard to beat despite all that. Like if you look at, I don't think Cater is particularly easy to beat as i said before i think he's easy to frustrate i think he's easy to like make look a little bit less effective like andre feely did that in his debut andre feely kind of he went southpaw he kicked cater a bit but i think the important thing is that cater isn't super easy to beat without something special from you 
And I think if someone like Moicano or Zabid didn't have the outside footwork that they did, the kind of intelligence that they did strategically, I don't think they'd be able to do that. Like if Yair Rodriguez goes in, does his dumb stuff, he might just get pressured badly, but he's not good on the outside anyway. So that's my worry with that kind of pick is that you can look at a dumb fighter and be like, they're not going to adapt, but there's a point where they don't have to. Yeah, that's the thing with uh, most MMA fighters. And uh, that's bringing me back to my point that I said way in the beginning of the podcast is that at some point uh, you start to one start wondering if the fighters actually train their fundamentals in any way. And by fundamentals, I mean their ring craft and, uh, and their idea of what they actually want to do in the fight. And everyone just... And how do I say this? Oh, fuck. <laughs> Cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, we're leaving all of this in. <laughs> uh, I should have made more mis- mispronunciations then. That would have been funnier. <laughs> Asking you to uh, edit this out and you leave this in, just to spite me. Well, uh, I I remain skeptical because I'm, and part of the reason I'm still it frustrates me is because if that had been. <laughs> I really, I seriously wish that Barboza had gotten his, like, his earned decision over Ige, because it would have been Barboza, Cater, and we would have seen Cater lose the exact same fight again, to show that he's, like, learned. We would have seen Cater run at him and Barboza be very close. Cater versus Hans Barboza. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, Oh, I I hope we still get that fight. I hope we still, I hope we still get a chance to see it, because... Too I know Barboza's going to lose to Stevens. He <laughs> <laughs> probably could. <laughs> oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> oh God, they're both, both going to lose to each other. Uh, either way, Calvicator's useless. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to like decrease our subscriber count. <laughs> <laughs> Even Derek Brunson is more coherent than Kelvin Cater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, of, as of now, Derek, Derek Brunson has shown a more capable ability to game plan than Calvin Cater, so that is something he can hang his hat on. One thing that annoyed me about last week's cards is that uh, the commentators, which were Dominic Cruz and uh, Paul Felder, they kept going on and on about uh, gotta take one to land one, and they, and the fighter that uh, took one to land one didn't actually land one. It's uh, like a more appropriate way to describe this would would be. Gotta take one to take one. <laughs> I think you should write a letter to him. We'll publish it. <laughs> a public a public letter to the UFC commentary team that says, I'm going to strap you to a chair and make you watch 500 more tie fights in a row with your eyes peeled open like in a clockwork orange, you fucking idiot. <laughs> That's how you know the definition of Muay Thai. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, I think that's probably gonna. I think that's probably enough. Uh, we got Shrim all riled up. Um, <laughs> that was the goal. Shrim, <laughs> uh, do you have anything coming out about Calvin Cater this week? No, all that content's <laughs> exhausted. I'll be sure. I'll be sure not to share it on Twitter. <laughs> do you actually have any articles coming out? Or no, I don't think so. I've uh, I've been painfully lazy since June. But um, yeah, I do do you have anything coming out, Danny? I do. I have a metagame article, and it is. I think it's done. Yeah, it should be done. I don't know when we're gonna run it. Um, I have like, I got the assistance of quite a few people to help this one come out. But um, at this point, I think it's just about finished, and uh, it should be coming out. I, my guess is it'll probably release before this podcast does. But in case it doesn't, it's all about prioritization of training, which probably would have been a much better uh, topic for podcasts than worst game yeah. plans, as we kind of got the, sidetracked. But you know what? Whatever. I actually, my pitch for this podcast was that, oh, let's discuss game planning and process in MMA, like in general. And uh, let's like outline this very smarty pants approach to, to like uh, fundamentals and training and strategy and everything else. And then we just got stuck at discussing how Poirier was trying to swim into Khabib's face and how Woodley sucks. And also how we forgot to vibe about the nut shots last time. Oh, yeah. The nut shots. What was that about? 15 nut shots. (laughs) 
<laughs> like five in a row in one at least one fight or like four in a row i don't the remember the entire which. event was that bogatov santos fight just stretched out to like three hours this and the k1 kushien which uh, like uh, i think they forgot the cups for the fighters and they kept not shutting each other and just <laughs> well free falling <laughs> it was horrendous to watch yeah uh, i can I imagine yes I guess for our wrap-up, we could like uh, just uh, run down the, the honorable mentions that weren't like featured in, in the discussion in terms of bad game plans. Uh, yeah, but, uh, sure. Calvin Cater versus Hinata Moicano. <laughs> 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 well, my list featured like after right after Darren Till versus Tyron Woodley. Uh, Cody Garbrandt, of course, versus TJ Dillashaw twice. And Cody Garbrandt versus Pedro Munoz. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to make uh, the joke that I've made on the, when we watched the fights and I forgot is that I think the reason why Cody Garbrandt was so bent on trying to knock out Dillashaw the same way twice is that uh, he's still mad about that time when uh, TJ refused to participate in the cinnamon challenge with, <laughs> with Cody Garbrandt. <laughs> it's like, we were supposed to take the cinnamon challenge together. <laughs> what the fuck, bro? <laughs> it was actually just over the tetherball game. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was supposed to write a tetherball article. I'm still, I still, I guess I should do that, huh? Oh well. It's worth it. Maybe I'll try to get to it this month. Um, Wasn't that Patreon like go or something? Maybe it was. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe, well, there's probably not enough. We should make that a Patreon goal. To do an article on, on the tetherball game. On the tetherball game. Frame by frame. Frame by frame. I watched it 49 times. My wife left me. <laughs> Karen, bring the kids back. Tell them to bring the ramen. We have to be done. <laughs> yeah, this is this is devolving into nonsense. Oh, yeah, the, the last one I, I want to mention. The last one, Kelvin oh, Gastelum versus <laughs> anyone who's not 87 years old. <laughs> oh, Mic drop. I'm done. I'm done. Can't beat that. Can't beat it. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll leave, so. I'll let you this up sort of we've yeah <laughs> we have so much to, to work with here yeah if you, if you got this far thanks for listening uh if you didn't get this far we forgive you because this was a mess but <laughs> this is one it, of the most fun podcasts we've ever done i'm yeah so this was terrific. zooming on again to do something like this yeah but uh go check out the fightsite.com go give us money on uh patreon and you can ask for fun t- podcast topics <laughs> I know we've earned it with this very fun uh, podcast episode that answered all your questions. Uh, and maybe you can be on the podcast next time. <laughs> <laughs> the only uh, thing you this... need to do is to insult someone on stuff. <laughs> We're going to get fired. <laughs> okay, Ryan. Make it Ryan. Make it Ryan. Insult Ryan. We'll bring you on immediately. Well, uh, visit, visit Hyperfly, who uh, have graciously accepted to support this hilarious mess, whatever it is. Uh, if you go to Hyperfly through the link at the bottom of the website, you'll be able to support uh, the channel, like, subscribe, whatever you do with YouTubers. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah bye. Yeah, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you later. Stay safe. <laughs>